Good morning. Glad you're here today and uh, hope you have a good week. A lot of our young people are out this week and so we've got some folks who are traveling not with us today. We wish them uh, safe travel, a good getaway, and hopefully they'll get back home soon. I want to call your attention to the bulletin. I do this from time to time, uh, but we as uh, office staff do our best to provide that every week. Uh, and it's one of those things that's routine, is easy, easy to overlook. Um, but listed in there are uh, ways where you can rejoice with those who rejoice and, and weep with those who weep. In our church family, there's always good news to share, and um, those who need us to pray for, uh, serve them, help them. A lot of opportunities to give, uh, help in our community. Uh, especially call your attention to the insert, because as we have mentioned already in our prayer, uh, we are beginning our small group Bible studies today. Uh, Chris Burton, who's directing our, uh, uh, organizing our whole uh, uh, outreach with this, uh, he's going to share some more details as we close, but it's just such a good thing. I want you to be a part of it. Uh, we're in week two of a series of studies on the Holy Spirit. There's an outline in the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along. We began with the first lesson talking about the Old Testament word for spirit is ruach. Uh, the, the New Testament uh, Greek word for spirit is pneuma. And both of these words have at their root the meaning of wind or breath of air. And we talked about this, how the Bible describes the Holy Spirit in, in two ways, both wind and fire. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So you don't know where the wind's coming from. You don't know where it's going. Wind's one of those rare things. You can't see it. You can't grab a hold of it, and yet you feel it. You see the effects of it. In this series, we're making the point about the Holy Spirit, that if should make an impact on your life, our lives, the way we live. Even if you can't see him, you should sense that he's there. And so we're asking the question, if the Holy Spirit were to leave, would you notice? If the Holy Spirit left this church, would we notice? I think that's something we need to think about from time to time. Or we just continue as usual, because it's easy just to... Get into a routine. We do that in our home life. We do that in our church life. We just go about things. And, but if the power of the Spirit is gone, would we even notice? When I mentioned this study to Barrett a few weeks ago, he was excited because our teenagers are studying how the Holy Spirit worked in the book of Acts. And he said, this is going to mesh really well with their Sunday morning classes. And he told me about a book that they are using in their study, Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And I thought that might describe what you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit. He is the forgotten God. Or maybe you equate the Holy Spirit as an emotional feeling, like maybe in a time of worship, maybe it was a particular song or something where you were just touched with a strong emotion. And so we'll even say the room was filled with the Spirit, or you could feel the Spirit. Or maybe when the tears flow, you, you give credit to the Spirit working in that way. Sometimes we'll even say things like, the Holy Spirit showed up. You ever heard that said? Or maybe you've heard someone talk about, 
They were in a situation, maybe they were teaching a class or maybe a, a preacher who was preaching and, and they didn't really feel prepared or adequate and, and they would say something like, well, it's okay because the Holy Spirit took over and it was just fantastic. I've always struggled with that one because I've never really felt like the Holy Spirit took over. And I thought, well, maybe I'm not relying on the Spirit enough. And I remember the day vividly when I was at a, a conference on ministers, and an older minister said, the Spirit can help you with words in those critical moments when you don't know what to say. The Bible talks about that. So, but let's not limit the Holy Spirit to only working extemporaneously, especially if you didn't prepare. The Holy Spirit can also work just as well and those hours of your own personal study and devotion, time you spend in the Word. Well, last week we talked about the fact that it's essential. If you want to know about the Holy Spirit, we have to begin with understanding who He is. And that He is a person. There's a relational dynamic involved. And the problem, as we talked about for many of us, is we think of the Holy Spirit of a, as a what instead of a who. And we speak of the Spirit as an it rather than a he. Or, or we relate to the Spirit as a force rather than a friend, a helper, the way Jesus described him, someone there to help me. And as long as our thinking is limited in that way, we're going to miss the very thing, the very promise that Jesus made about the Holy Spirit. It begins with this understanding of the Holy Spirit as a person. The relational dynamic involved is stronger than we realize. So the purpose of our study, and I want to make sure I share this, is, is not to explain every facet of the Holy Spirit. As we get through this, there's no way that we can grasp everything in this study. Instead, what I want to do in these messages is to help you deepen your relationship with the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we understand that. Today the message is entitled, He Was Promised. Last time we read a passage where Jesus promised his followers the Holy Spirit would come. It's in John chapter 14. I put it on the screen as well. He, asked the, he made the comment right before he was leaving, in the last days with his disciples. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another Helper. Remember, we talked about that, that word another, just like me. That's what that word means. Helper, advocate, comforter, counselor, friend, depending on the translation you're reading. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. This is John 14. Think of the context here. This is in the last days Jesus had before he died on the cross. It wasn't that long until that day came, and he died on the cross, and he was buried, and he was resurrected. And then in Acts chapter 1, we have him, again, truly, in just moments before he ascended, sharing this promise. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. And then Jesus went to heaven. And then the disciples were left. And for nine days, nothing. 
nothing for nine days. Then on the day of Pentecost, that promise became a reality. And don't you know, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit being like a wind. That promise they remembered so vividly. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You may even want to open your own Bibles and just see, because we're going to park a while in this particular passage. Acts chapter 2, look how it opens. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And remember, as we won't take the time to read it, but as the chapter unfolds, Peter then speaks to the thousands that were there. And the Bible says those who heard his amazing sermon, look in verse 37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart, that's the Holy Spirit at work. The truth convicted them. Verse 37 continues. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter told them exactly what they needed to hear. Verse 38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they're cutting their heart, and they ask the question, What do we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized. Now, you may be very familiar with this passage. Maybe you grew up, and this is one of the first ones that you marked, or maybe you memorized. And so someone says Acts 2.38, and you can just quote it. Or it may be for you that this is a new verse. Maybe you're not as familiar with it. But either way, I want you to notice something. Notice what Peter does in this statement. He parallels repentance and baptism with forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get in a grammar lesson because I'd lose some of you. But notice his wording here because he's teaching an amazing truth that everybody needs. See, some people trip over the necessity of baptism with salvation because in their mind, and again, maybe it's an upbringing or maybe somebody told them this early on or maybe they misread something, but they think of baptism as a work. It's something that you do. And if it's something that I do, then if I do that for my salvation, then I'm earning my salvation. So they discount the necessity of baptism. But when you study baptism, in fact, the whole ceremonial cleaning from the beginning to the end of Scripture, what you realize here, being baptized is an act of submission. Someone does it to you. You can't baptize yourself. You have to be baptized. Something else I want us to learn from this very important passage. You know, when you study Scripture, Bible, you might remember this as a child, or maybe if you taught children's classes, you talk about the different divisions of books of the Bible. There's some history books. There's some epistles. Uh, there's uh, uh, the Revelation, the uh, prophecy books, Old Testament, New Testament, all kinds of books, books of wisdom, books of poetry. So it's important then when you're reading in the Bible to understand what kind of book that you're reading from. The book of Acts is history. It tells us what happened. Now the reason why that matters is when you're reading through biblical history, then you understand what happened in that time. But the question arises then when we're trying to make some kind of application. 
you're reading a history book and you see something happened then, the question that we ask in interpreting, well, does that happen now? Because you need to ask that question because sometimes that may not be the case at all. For example, you read in the book of Exodus how when Moses and the children of Israel got up to the big sea, the water couldn't pass. God told him to hold his hands up and the water parted. You could read that and say, so you get to a body of water and you want to pass, then the Bible says you just raise your hand. That's not the way you interpret because that's history. What happened then may not necessarily mean that's what should happen for us today. Again, that's how you read and interpret the Bible. So the book of Acts is the book of history. And you're reading this, this is what happened then. Does that mean that that's what it means for it to happen for us today? But notice here, when Peter answers them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't stop there. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has inspired him to say, hang on, this is not just a one-time thing. Everybody needs to know this. Even maybe anticipating, there may be those in the future who would say, that was then, not so much for us now. Look what he continues to say. Verse 39. For the promise. Remember this word we're talking about? The promise. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If you're the kind that likes to mark your Bible or underline your Bible, may I encourage you just to circle that word promise. The Holy Spirit was promised. This was his plan all along the way. Isn't that interesting what he's saying here? Peter was saying this is not just for the people then on that day, those, who, those thousands who had assembled on the day of Pentecost. That was a momentous moment in the history of time. But the promise wasn't just for them. It's for their children and for those who were to come. To the ends of the earth is what Jesus said. So what are we to do to be saved? Very same thing. Repent and be baptized. Now, if you believed in Jesus all your life, maybe you've been attending church all of your life, it's easy to think, well, I'm part of the church. I'm saved. But if you've not yet repented, if you've not yet been baptized, then you don't have forgiveness of sins. You don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's teaching here, very simply. Now, I want you to notice the wording Peter uses here. He says, you'll receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. But what good is a gift if you never open the box, if you never unwrap the package? Think of it like this. Maybe something very practical, very useful gift. Maybe your dishwasher is broken and you're given a new one. Or maybe you have a broken down lawnmower. I don't know anything about that. I've heard people who have broken down lawnmowers and someone just gives you a brand new one. Wouldn't that be an amazing gift? Or, or maybe it's just your, your backpack, you know, for school, and, and a strap broke, and your parents bought you a new one. Or maybe you're driving an older car, and the AC is broken down, and, and your husband surprises you with a newer model. Amazing gifts, every one of those. But if you still wash your dishes by hand, <clears throat> still mowing your grass with a barred lawnmower, if you're still carrying your old backpack with one strap or driving your old car with broken down air conditioning. Now, to be clear, 
I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is like an appliance, okay? It's not what the Bible teaches at all. It's not what I'm trying to say. The Holy Spirit is not a tool to make our life easier or more convenient, like a dishwasher. Not at all. What I am saying is that we may live our whole lives without ever tapping into the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't even acknowledge the good that he can do for us. You've received the gift, and you've not even opened the box. So what does it look like to have the Holy Spirit in our lives? Again, we can turn to Scripture, and there's at least two ways it's explained. And, and I need to share this with you. I shared this with the elders and the other ministers uh, yesterday at our retreat. One of my challenges in teaching and preaching is, is to know how deep to go and how shallow to go and how exhaustive to be in teaching. And one of my challenges on Thursday of this week, I had about an hour and a half worth of sermon. And it was fantastic, y'all. It was good stuff. But I knew you wouldn't last an hour and a half. I probably wouldn't either. I got 30 minutes. And so that's one of my challenges each week. Okay, what, what can I share? What, what's the nuggets? What, 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 what can be cut out? What, what do you need to study at home yourself to go a little deeper? And I don't always do well with that. That's a constant struggle for me. But I want you to get this. I put this on the outline. It's on the screen as well. The Bible teaches about the gifts of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit. Does that ring a bell to you? Sure. The Bible talks about the gifts of the Spirit. There are a couple of times in, in where it lists those. And the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it seems to me, though, seems to me that whenever you talk, read, or study about the Holy Spirit, and I'll share this, the focus I observe, at least immediately, tends to be on the gifts. Because they're fantastic. I mean, they are incredible. They're like, oh, wow, look at that. Look at all the gifts of the Spirit. I read a number of books. I read a lot of articles, commentary scholars, and I see this emphasis often. That's kind of where we go, you know. Tell us about these powerful gifts. And we're going to get into that in, in our next lesson. But the more I study, the more I try to understand what the Bible actually says, it seems to me that the fruit of the Spirit, more so than the gifts, is the evidence of a relationship, a deep relationship with the Spirit, when you're walking in the Spirit. Now, these two go together, gifts and fruit, but the fruit of the Spirit demonstrate the deep relationship. Now, that's not to say that the fruit more effectively demonstrates the Holy Spirit. I'm saying it more effectively demonstrates the relationship with the Spirit. Is that not the very point Paul makes when he's writing to the church at Corinth. Do you remember in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's one of the times where he, he lists the gifts of the Spirit. That church had worship all convoluted. It was all about themselves. And so he's trying to help them to understand that you have these gifts, not for your own, but for the benefit of others. That's chapter 12. Fantastic chapter about the gifts. But do you remember how he ends that chapter trying to clarify I will show you a more excellent way. And what follows after those amazing gifts of the Spirit is the great love chapter we call chapter 13. Now, he's not minimizing the gifts at all. But again, look at his words. They're on the screen. How, how he explains it, the more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels 
But have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Speaking in the tongues of men. See what he's talking about here? And if I have prophetic powers, there's another one. I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul is just explaining, look, I can have all these amazing gifts of the Holy Spirit that you just talked about. But if I don't have the fruit of the Spirit, this love that comes in so many forms, I'm nothing. I've missed it. So I want us to think about, for the next few minutes, about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 gives us a list of the fruit. They're on the screen. You probably know them by heart. Let's read them together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit, the evidence, the result of the Spirit working in you. What does it look like? That's what it looks like. That's what he's saying. Remember Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount? You shall know them by their fruit. That's what he's talking about here. I did a quick internet search on attributes you should include when you're looking for a job. Not for me, just for the sermon. But what would you list if you were trying to maybe rework your resume and things that you had mentioned for yourself? Joy wasn't listed. Neither was kindness or gentleness. Of the nine, none were on the list. Now, the ones they listed were good, valuable traits, creative, problem solver, practical, team player, flexible, diligent, organized, adaptable, confident, eloquent, wonderful traits, kind of things that an employer is looking for in a person to be a part of, of their business, of their team. Good traits, honorable traits, what an employer wants. But Jesus is not talking about getting a job. What the Bible is teaching us here is about walking in the Spirit. And Paul vividly describes walking in the Spirit, what it looks like. It looks like love. It looks like joy. It looks like peace. It looks like patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ready for the next hour of the lesson? Because we could go into all of these. And we still couldn't cover them. Maybe one at a time even. So I don't have time to do all that. So one author said he surveyed to see which one of these is needed most by men. Any guess? Look at the nine. Which one is needed most by men? Survey said gentleness. Is that what you were thinking? Gentleness. Kind of surprised me a little bit because I think gentleness is kind of overlooked. You know, like when you're thinking about buying a car and you've got those little option packages, you know, so if they throw in this neat, neat thing, you're like, hey, I'll take it, but you don't want to pay for it, right? So gentleness is kind of one of those. I'm not looking for it, but if it happens to be a part of the package, then, then I'll take it. And that really, it, 
I think about that. Maybe that's why men need this is because we don't aspire for this. Because I, I looked up the definition of, of, of gentleness, or really the synonyms for gentleness, soft, mild, tender. Men, isn't that what you're going for? Soft, mild, tender. But maybe the reason that gentleness won more votes in that survey is the way gentleness was described. Power and strength that is under control for the benefit of someone else. Gentleness. Power and strength that is under control for the benefit of someone else. That's gentleness. You might even say, plus a little patience. And, and maybe a little self-control. Maybe they're all part of that. So the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. That's not a weakness. It's a strength. It's under control. Now, to be clear, what Paul lists as the fruit of the Spirit, it follows another list. Remember that in Galatians chapter 5? Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What a contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. But look at that list. If you were to think of those, what would be the opposite of gentleness? Several of them, maybe. But what about fits of anger? Some versions say fits of rage or outbursts of anger. Kind of the opposite of gentleness. That's power and strength under control for the benefit of others. It's emotional frustration that's out of control. And usually to the detriment of whoever's nearby. They're angry and you know it. You hear the words. You feel the, you feel the, the weight, the brunt, the reaction. It's that constant state of aggravation. It's that given that constant scowl of disappointment, that heavy sigh of annoyance, that person who's always defensive, constantly critical, the perpetual bad mood. Are you thinking of anybody? Is anybody thinking of you? Remember what we said about in our last lesson about how we relate to the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Ephesians 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Don't make the Spirit sad by the way you live. That's what it means there. And to put that verse in context, because that's what we should do when we study Scripture, it's very interesting. The very next verses, look on the screen, verses 31 and 32. He follows that, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, you see, there, at least to some degree, what brings sorrow, what grieves the Holy Spirit, is bitterness, and rage, and anger, harsh tones, that perpetual bad mood. That spirit that is not of God. In fact, it's the work of the flesh is what he says. So how do we do this? 
For most of us, when we hear things like fruit of the Spirit, like gentleness or joy or patience or self-control, maybe it's, maybe it's living our day in a time in America where we think, I need a self-help plan. I'm going to try harder to be more patient. But what you don't read when you read about the working of the Holy Spirit, especially His fruit, is about trying harder. What you read about is being filled with the Holy Spirit, being in step with the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. Look at Galatians 5, 25. So in your outline, really a major point of the morning, I want to make sure we get this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's it. That's it. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Well, how do we do that? Well, I want to close with this. I told you I was going to wrap it up in 30 minutes. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to share a few, and then in our, our Bible studies tonight, you, you may come up with even more. I, I hope you will. But here's one, just to, just to get, get us thinking about this. Step one, borrowing from Peter, repent. Step one is repent. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, they were cut to the heart. I mean, uh, the uh, Sermon on Pentecost, they were cut to the heart. It was the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin. They knew they were guilty. They needed to do something. John W. Smith wrote a book. This is from his uh, book. I put this quote on the screen. The major impact and evidence of receiving the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit through baptism is not an ethereal, emotional, experiential high of sublime elevation and spiritual supremacy. It is the devastating awareness and conviction of sin and utter brokenness and unworthiness. It's immediately followed by a lifelong journey of being transformed into the image of the risen Christ. On the day of Pentecost, when they heard that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ, they believed the truth. And they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sin. Repentance says to the Holy Spirit, I have sinned. So step two is surrender. You repent and then you surrender. I like how one translation put Galatians 5.25. We shall live therefore in the Spirit and surrender to the Spirit. Again and again in Scripture we read like in James 4, 6, and 7. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Surrender. So throughout the day, you begin your day, throughout your day, you end your day. Surrender your words before you speak them. You surrender your right to get even. You surrender your irritations, your frustrations. You surrender. Step three would be to ask. Luke 11, verse 13. Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask. You ask the Holy Spirit And Jesus says, he'll give it. God will give it. There's a close correlation in Scripture to being filled with the Spirit in our words. I want to make sure we get this. Look at the screen. I put just a few examples. You can go back in your own Bibles and maybe underline them or mark them. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said... 
to them. Acts 4 verse 25, quoting from David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 verse 31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Fill with the Spirit and then speaking. Earlier we looked at Acts 2 4 where they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. An amazing moment. They didn't study the languages. They didn't know the languages. They were foreign languages to them. And yet they were able to speak clearly. What's our application? Just that one spirit, fruit of the spirit we're talking about, gentleness. For some of us, the greatest display of the Holy Spirit working in you may be to speak to speak in the tongue of encouragement, to speak in the tongue of positivity, to speak in the tongue of grace and gentleness. Because for you, it may be a foreign language. It may be for you that the home you grew up in, you weren't taught that language. You didn't experience that language. It was harsh. It was rude. It was ugly. And that's what you know. So the evidence, the fruit of the Spirit working in you may just be to speak this new language. If people are to see the Holy Spirit working in your life, it's going to start with our speech. And step four is believe. These are not necessarily in order. In fact, you might even reverse them. Believe. You believe the promise Jesus said, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to give you another, another helper. He made the promise. In the 11th chapter of Luke, he says that he will, the Father would give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Look at Romans 8, verse 11. Put it on the screen. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If the Spirit's working in you, people will know. People will know. I read about Christy Robinson. I want to tell you her story. She runs is part of a, a ministry called Hope Place in a major metropolitan area. And as the story is explaining, within three blocks of their ministry, there are all kinds of refugees there, and, and they speak uh, no less than a hundred languages. And they're trying to just help those people with some immediate needs, but also to, to understand who Jesus Christ is. But Christy also has a story as a lot of us do. She grew up in a home where her dad struggled with alcohol and anger. Have you noticed how often those two go together? She has vivid memories. She writes about holes in the wall, broken picture frames, all kinds of broken things in their home. When he was most angry, he would take it out on her mom. She bore the scars. As an adult, Christy realizes that probably a lot of his anger came from his own father, who was an angry alcoholic, a war vet who suffered from PTSD. But when Christy was still young, her brother was invited to go to church by a friend. He went to church and he loved it. He wanted the whole family to go. 
He kept saying, we should all go, and he was relentless. And so they would go occasionally, the family would go, but the dad sometimes went, but not very interested, not very engaged. That is, until somebody from the church invited him to join the basketball league. He loved playing basketball. And then one of those friends invited him to a men's conference for a weekend. Christian said after that conference, her dad was a completely different man. Day and night difference. He wasn't the same person. She wrote, he came back and he wanted us all to go to church every Sunday together. He did his best to start spiritually leading our family, even though he did not have an example of what that looked like growing up. She said before her dad became a Christian, he often missed birthday parties, special events. He became much more involved and engaged with all of them. She went on to say, once in a while, my dad still lost his temper. But now when it happened, he would tell my mom he was sorry. He would apologize to us kids. I would see him cry over his sin. When my dad changed... Our whole family changed. When I saw the difference Jesus made in my dad, I wanted to know Jesus too. John 3, verse 8, Jesus' words, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You may not see him, you may not understand when you're walking in the Spirit, submitting, surrendering, believing, asking, it makes a difference. Earlier we mentioned what Peter said to the people when they were convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. What do we do? Repent and be baptized. That's our invitation for you. If you've not yet had your sins washed away. You need forgiveness. And you can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you? The Lord lift his countenance upon.